0: Well, what's up, guys? Good morning. My name is uh, Benji, for those of y'all that I do not uh, know, and it is such a pleasure and a privilege to teach with you guys this morning. This is truly one of uh, my favorite things that I get to do. I mean, this is such a blessing in my heart, and so uh, I'm excited to to open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, will you go ahead and slip a hand up? We want to make sure everybody's got something. Either open it up, turn it on, uh, get the scripture open. We are going to continue this morning in Genesis. Uh, we are going to be starting out kind of in Genesis chapter 25, but uh, we're continuing our beginnings talk as we have been slowly kind of crawling through the book of Genesis over the last couple of months. And, and we saw months ago God's perfect intent uh, of creation in Eden. We saw God create uh, the heavens and the earth and the world that we get to inhabit, and it took uh, just a few short verses for man to fracture that, uh, and for, uh, for man to, to step in and to begin uh, to create issues, and sin entered the world, and yet God was patient, and God had grace, and God forgave, and man continued to, to walk away, and we saw the purification by way of rain through Noah. And then we saw man continue to uh, populate the earth again and sin again. And God's patience and restoration, a man fracture, and God's patience and restoration. And a couple weeks ago, we got to Abraham. And we saw Abraham, a man who was childless, who him and his wife could not have any children. And, and late in his years, God made a promise and said, Abraham, if you will trust me, the descendants from your family line will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And Abraham and his wife, Sarah, had a hard time believing that. And so Abraham and I, uh, Abraham and Sarah tried to do things their their own way and not trusting God's promise, and we see how chaos and issues uh, came about because of that, but yet God's promises were still faithful. And then last week, we got into Isaac, and from Isaac, we now get to the family line of Jacob. And so we have eight chapters to cover this morning. We are not going to be able to go in detail to all of it. Uh, There's too much to cover, and so as Brian will will say week after week, far greater than anything I'll say up here this morning is what God will speak to you through his active and alive scripture throughout the week. And So please take some time reading through uh, chapters 25 through 33 in the uh, the life of Jacob because there is a lot in here uh, that God can speak to you about, a lot that he's spoken to me about, and a lot more I wish that I had time for this morning. Uh, but we got to kind of get moving. So, uh, if you will, let's pray this morning. Father, we love you. This is your house, this is your place of worship, Lord. And I pray that we all stepped in here this morning for different reasons, but ultimately, this is to glorify you and to worship you. And I pray that this wouldn't be just. Another thing we do throughout the week, that this wouldn't be just an experience that we hope to encounter, but that we'd step into this place with a heart of worship. And that now as we open up your word, God, I pray that it will speak to us as it says that it will. God, I pray that you will clear distractions, uh, the busyness of our lives and families and job. Will you stand in the way of Satan wanting to cause any disruption in this room? And we give you, Holy Spirit, freedom to move. And God, I submit and surrender to you that you'll speak through me. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, by show of hands, anybody got a dysfunctional family? Or like some dysfunctional family members? Yeah, if you didn't raise your hand, don't worry. One of your family members probably raised their hand about you, right? <laughs> right? Like we've got some dysfunction. Uh, this is the time of year to where uh, November 1 is Christmas season. Even sometime in July, Christmas season starts coming up. And my favorite movie of all time is Christmas Vacation. Uh, I don't know if this is a place. Come on. Uh, I don't know if this is the place to admit that uh, while preaching, but I love me some Clark Griswold and Cousin Eddie. And uh, when I was reading through the story of Jacob, uh, my thought was like, man, please, we got some dysfunction in the life we're going to read, but if we're honest, we all got a Cousin Eddie or a Clark Griswold in our family, right? Like we all got a little bit of dysfunction, and we all got those family members who at dinner, we think, man, I wish you wouldn't have said that. Right, or we think, golly, I'd have given anything if you would not have done that. And sometimes we have family members and we think, God, please let our family line not extend much farther past that family member. Anybody else? Right? (laughs) And yet we got some dysfunction and we got some chaos. And as I started reading through the life of Jacob, my second thought was if there was ever a Jerry Springer family that would make the top ten, it was the family of Jacob. He would have crushed some ratings. And I read this story and and we're going to see that uh, we see a man whose life was defined by dysfunction. Chaos seemed to abound inside of him and follow him wherever he went, yet there is something about this man's life uh, that God wanted to use. Uh, There is something vitally important about this man's life that God was going to use and that we are now called to step into and to learn from, and we're going to see a man that as we read and as we study, we think, gosh, God, please don't pick him Right? Like what could you possibly be doing through the life of this man, Jacob? And yet God doesn't necessarily pick and choose the people that we think might be best fit. And so if we'll open up Genesis chapter 25 this morning, we're gonna start in verse 19. We're gonna open up God's word now to, to see the beginning of the life of Jacob. So verse 19, Genesis. Chapter 25 says, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. So now we are in the second and about to be the third generation from Abraham. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless, and the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled inside each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first came out, and he was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them, and the boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, and Rebekah loved Jacob. Starting out in Jacob, we are going to see now that uh, much like Isaac's father Abraham, Isaac and his wife Rebecca had a hard time getting pregnant and so they go and they pray and they ask the Lord uh, to give them kids and it says that God was gracious and answered them. and says then that Rebekah becomes pregnant and she feels like this jostling in her stomach. She feels like this inner toy, uh, turmoil in her belly and so she goes to inquire the Lord and she says, God, what is going on? inside of my stomach." And the Lord speaks a prophecy over It says that there's two nations inside of you. One will rule over the other. One will submit to the other. And then it says it's time for her to give birth. And the first son, the oldest son, is born and said he was like a hairy garment. I think of like little baby Grinch in the movie, right, with Drew Carey. like comes out, it's like this fuzzy little thing who's, who's cute only to the mama's eye, but uh, we see that he was red, and he was covered in hair, and he came out first, and the second son, Jacob, was right after him and said that as Esau was born, Jacob was grasped onto the heel of his older brother, and so they called him Jacob, which literally means one who grabs the heel. Sometimes I love how the scripture is like, man, you were grabbing a heel. Your name's Jacob because you were grabbing a heel. Some uh, some Some people kind of... To translate that a little bit into the one who deceives or one who is deceptive because he was grabbing for something that was not his. These men began, or these boys began to grow up and it says that Esau was this manly man, man like he loved the woods. He was a, a hunter. He was an outdoorsy guy. He was your Bear Grylls. Uh, for our context, he was, he was, kind of like Matt Stewart, a little bit of Ross Bradley, these these big beards and burly outdoorsy guys, and says Esau, man, he had a taste, or uh, Isaac had a taste for wild game. He loved him, some venison wrapped in bacon, and so my man Esau goes out and hunts, and that's my favorite. Right? And then we have Jacob. It says, Jacob, he was content with staying among the tents. He's kind of more of your leather couch, wears glasses, hangs out in the library type of guy around the house, mama's boy. And it says, Rebecca picked him as her favorite. And we see that this will have some importance down the road, but two boys, twins, yet could not be any more different. And two boys, twins, in light of their differences, the parent takes a choosing and has a favorite. We're going to fast forward a little bit in chapter 25. The boys have grown up now. They're becoming young men. And in verse 29, it says, Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said, Jacob, quick, let me have some of that uh, red stew because I'm famished. Jacob replied, first some of your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew, ate, drank, got up, and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. What do we see happen right here? We see Esau, he's out roughing it. He's out doing manly stuff. He comes back home, and and he's tired, and he's hungry, and Jacob has learned how to cook from his mama and has got some stew cooking, and Esau says, Please, give me me something to eat. I'm about to die. He's a little uh, overreactive. He's a bit of a drama queen. He says, Give me something to eat. I'm about to die, and Jacob, for the first time, we see him start to step into uh, a little bit of uh, lifeline that we're going to see from here on, and he's like, he says, well, well, before I give you something to eat, sell me your birthright. And, and it's important for us to realize that in this culture, the birthright was the inheritance that the first son would receive from the father. And so as uh, the oldest son, the firstborn would receive a double portion of inheritance than the second son would receive. So whatever Jacob was destined to be given as far as wealth and 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 livestock and possessions, Esau was going to get a double portion of that. It also came with a double portion of responsibility. It came with more responsibility on the family line, but also, because of what we studied in the weeks past, it also came with the blessing and the promises and the inheritance and the covenant of their grandfather Abraham. And so Esau comes in, he said, I'm hungry, man, will you give me something to eat? And Jacob says, well, send me your birthright first. I want what is not mine. I want the blessings, I want the inheritance, I want all this worldly possession and stuff, and so give me that first. And it says Esau basically was like, man, I don't even care. Like, I'm about to die, figuratively I'm about to die, one day I'm about to die, so what's a birthright? matter to me and we see Esau despise his birthright give up the blessings of his father but ultimately the blessings of God through Abraham for none other less than some lentil soup anybody ever had lentil soup like what a waste to give up your birthright right some bread and some bean soup but we see Esau he gives up the blessings of God through the covenant of Abraham for a bowl of soup and it's the first time we see Jacob step into This deceptive, deceiving personality. Well, then fast forward a little bit more, and we don't have time to read it, but in chapter 27 and 28, we are now getting close to the end of the life of Isaac, of their father. And it said Isaac's eyesight is bad, he can't hardly move, he's somewhat half dead in a sense. And so we read that Isaac goes to Esau and he said, Esau, I'm I'm towards the end of my life. Go out, kill me some wild game, bring it back, cook it, prepare it for me. And once I've eaten it, I will also give you my blessing as the father. And another important thing to realize that we take a time out is that for the Hebrews, the blessing carried great weight with it. One article said that a patriarch's final blessing was important in biblical times as a practical matter of the inheritance rights. And in addition, some final blessings included prophetic statements that revealed God's supernatural power at work through the men of his choosing. And so a blessing from the patriarch was in addition to the inheritance, was in addition to the double portion of earthly possessions, but it also carried with it at times this prophetic word of what God was going to do and the blessing God was going to have for that child. And so uh, one of the things that, that as I read through this is, is being reminded that our culture has numbed the impact of speaking blessing and encouragement over people. Like to the Hebrews, words of blessings were everything. Like you literally would, uh, and we're going to see some some drastic measures here, but like you lived for the moment that your father was going to pass and he spoke this blessing from God. Like the, the Hebrew patriarchs and the fathers, they would have been planning for years and years and years and rehearsing these blessings that they would speak over their oldest. And, and one of the things that, that even I've realized that working with students with NG3, and a couple of our volunteers that, that are in church here can attest to this, but we do something uh, most weeks called the hot seat. And in essence, what the hot seat is, is we get one student, we're in, a, we're, you know, we're in our small group circles, but we get a student and we say, hey, you're, uh, Eli, you're on the hot seat tonight, man, and for the next 30 seconds, each of us are going to go around and we're just going to speak a word of blessing over you. And for a young man whose peers he's used to hearing uh, joking and being messed with and condescending, playful jabs, right, to have your peers and some of your friends speak blessing over you carries tremendous weight. There was a time we did this with a student, and within 15 or 20 minutes of him leaving, I get a text from his mom and basically says, like, you will have no, you have no idea the impact that that had on him tonight. Like he came home beaming because of the encouragement and the blessing that his peers spoke over him. A- and realizing that our culture doesn't value that the same, but it doesn't mean the impact's any different. Of recognizing, like, our words, the ability that we have to speak encouragement and blessing over somebody can be life changing. And so we see that Isaac tells Esau, Hey, man, the time's coming. Uh, I'm about to die. I'm going to speak that blessing over you. Go get me some food, come back, cook it, and I'll bless you. And, and, and Rebecca, she's, uh, she's kind of hiding out behind the corner and listening to, to Isaac tell this to Esau, and, and he, she runs back and she says, Jacob, your dad, he's about to die. I overheard him say that he's about to give the blessing to Esau, and so run out quickly, go get a goat from the pasture, bring it back, I'll cook it up, I'll make it like I know he likes to eat, and then you'll take it in and you'll steal the blessing along with the birthright from your brother Esau, and Esau's like, well, mom, you give me like lotion to wash my hands with, like my skin's all smooth, and, and I'm all oily, and my brother's hairy, and like he stinks because he's outside all the time, like I smell good because I hang out with you, and he's like, my dad's going to know if I go in there and try to steal this blessing. And she says, well, we'll go get the goat. And after I kill the goat, I'm going to skin it. I'm going to put the skin and the the fur on the back of your neck and on your hands. And she runs into Esau's closet at the house and takes some of his clothes and and dresses Jacob in it. And so Jacob is covered in goat fur, covered in the clothes of his brother Esau. And the mom, Rebecca, helps deceive uh, even her husband to steal the blessing for Jacob. And so uh, Rebecca makes the meal, and Jacob goes in, and he's uh, disguised as Esau, and he walks up, and he says, Dad, here I am. I'm here to receive my blessing. Here's your food. And Isaac says, Who is that? You can't see. He's close to death. And and Jacob lies and and deceives and says, It's your son Esau. And uh, Isaac says, Well, well, come here and give me a hug. And it says that he came, and and he hugged Jacob, and he said, Well, The voice is that of Jacob, but it smells and it it feels like Esau. And so Isaac eats the meal, and after he has had his full, he says, come here. And and Jacob, deceiving his dad, uh, Isaac now speaks this blessing over his son Jacob. What was rightfully Esau's, Jacob is now stolen twice from Esau. And so it says that after the blessing was done, Jacob runs out, and Scripture says right after Jacob runs out, Esau comes in, he had gotten him some game, he cooks it, he presents it to his dad, and he says, Dad, I'm here for my blessing. And Isaac says, well, who was that that just came in? And Isaac begins to weep, knowing that his brother has stolen his birthright, and now his blessing from him, and he begins to weep and to cry, and he says, Dad, do you not still have something left for me? And Isaac says, like, the blessing I have given, like, I, I have already, I've been prepping this my whole life to give to my firstborn who has rightfully deserved it, Then your brother's coming in and stole it. I have nothing left. And, and Esau weeps, and he's angry, and he's bitter, and, and, and Jacob speaks a word over Esau, but in essence, it almost carries with it this, uh, th- this, this warning of what's to come in his life. And as you can imagine, now, Esau is furious with his brother Jacob. And in his anger, he sets out to kill him. Sounds a little bit familiar of, of what we've even read in the previous chapters, right? The brother is furious, and he sets out to kill Jacob. And so now Rebekah, uh, Jacob, be a mama's boy, and, 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 and Isaac has given the blessings and all his inheritance to Jacob. They conspire together and say, you need to flee from here before your brother kills you. We're going to send you off to Padam to the land of your uncle, Rebecca's brother, and so they get him all ready. They send him on his way, and we're about to see that, that Jacob is about to be confronted with his sin, but I want to pause for a second in chapter 28. We get to chapter 28, and, and Jacob is fleeing. He's on his way uh, distance and miles and miles and miles to his Uncle's land, and he gets. Uh, scripture basically says, like, he's in the middle of nowhere's nowhere, like he's just out in the boondocks by himself. Uh, and he's tired, and he grabs a rock and lays down. Uh, and as he's sleeping on this rock, he has this trippy dream, which I have some trippy dreams sleeping on a pillow, much less sleeping on a rock. And so, but in this crazy dream, God comes to him, and he speaks a blessing and a reminder of the blessings from his granddad Abraham. Even in Jacob's dysfunction and in his chaos and in his deception and deceiving and sin, God was continuing to pursue him. And God blesses him. And we get a little uh, look inside even the heart of Jacob. And Jacob's response to God's blessing in chapter 28, verse 20, says that then Jacob made a vow. God has blessed him. Jacob makes a vow. And says, if God will be with me and watch over me on this journey that I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my, father, my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give me, I'll give you a tenth. God's patient with Jacob. God speaks a word of blessing over Jacob. And Jacob's response is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, God, if you do these things for me. If you watch out for me, if you have my back, if you protect me, if you do these things for me, then you'll be my God. Then I'll give you a tent. Then I'll slide some money into the box or the plate on Sunday. And we see Jacob, a little look into his heart of, God, if you do these things for me, then I'll honor you. Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever been to a place of, uh, if, of our walk with Jesus saying, yeah, yeah, I'll do these things, God, but here's what I need from you. And if we don't receive those things and we feel like we're being wronged and we feel like we've been screwed a little bit and we, we feel like God owes us something. Anybody? Right? Like, like we see this, this look into Jacob's heart where he's bargaining with God and we see a man who is following God on his own strength and yet... God's patient continues to follow Jacob. In chapter 29, Jacob gets to Padam Aram, the land of his uncle Laban. And Jacob's standing there. He's with the other shepherds, and, and they're bringing their sheep to the well. And it says that as they're standing there, J- Laban's younger daughter, Rachel, comes walking up because she was a shepherd. And the Bible says, like, Rachel had it going on. And, and Jacob sees Rachel and he, he smoothly walks over and he uncovers the well and waters the sheep and says he starts crying after he gave her a kiss and, and says, hey, I'm, I'm from your father's household. And she runs back and she tells her dad, uh, family has come to our land. And he runs out and, and, and welcomes Jacob in. And after about a month of Jacob working uh, for his uncle, he says, hey, like your family, Uh, Even though your family, like, should I rob you of some kind of payment for all your work? Like, name your price, whatever you want, uh, and it's yours. And Jacob's like, man, I know exactly what I want. Since the first time I walked into this land, your daughter Rachel walked up, and that's who I want. So he says, I'll work seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. And in that culture, there was always a payment that was given uh, for marriage. And, And commentary even says, like, that seven years of free labor was even a generous offer from Jacob. In essence, telling Laban, like, man, I want your daughter Rachel. I want your younger daughter bad. I'll go above and beyond to work for her hand in marriage. And so Jacob says, cool, man. Or uh, Laban says, cool. So Jacob begins to work for his seven years. And it says, uh, scripture says that there were two daughters. There was an older daughter whose name was Leah, and there was a younger daughter, Rachel. And this is not my word. This is from the scriptures. You can take it up with God. But J, as uh, God describes, Leah says that in light of Rachel, she had weak and tired eyes. In essence, next to Rachel, like she had a good personality, and that was about all that was going for <laughs> But then we have Rachel, and it's like, man, Rachel had it going on. And, and so Jacob starts working for Rachel day after day, week after week, and it was so sweet. Scripture says that, but to Jacob, it only seemed like a couple of days because of his love for Rachel. Like he toiled and he worked and he sweat for years and it seemed like just a vapor of a day because of his love. And so the time had come, the seven years were up, Laban throws this huge party, invites all the people, throws this banquet to celebrate now the wedding of Jacob. And Rachel, and a few uh, guys that have waited for your wives, you know the anticipation that leads up to the wedding and the wedding night. And, and Jacob probably indulges a little bit on some wine at this party thrown for him and says that he goes into his tent late at night, indulged, turns on some Marvin Gaye, ready, excited for the night, and in his, uh, in his oblivion, Laban is met, uh, Jacob is met with his match, and Laban, it says, Laban actually slides in his daughter Leah. Jacob lays with Leah, has no idea what's going on until the next morning. And we see that in verse 25 in chapter 29 says, When the morning came, there was Leah. Like, I I loved that little exclamation point, even that (laughs) there's scripture right there. Like, when morning came, there was Leah. Surprise, like, you have been tricked. Jacob has been deceived, and Jacob wakes up, and he rolls over, and he's like, that is not who I was expecting to roll over and to see, right, we got old tired eyes, still in her slumber, and he jumps up, and he runs to his uncle, and he said, what have you done to me? You have deceived me, which is the irony of all ironies, and, and Laban says, well, man, you don't know the custom of our culture then, right, the custom of our culture is the younger daughter can't be given into marriage, so the older daughter, and so you got Leah, And Jacob says, well, let me at least work another seven years to then get Rachel's hand in marriage and Laban agrees and hustles another seven years of work from Jacob. Jacob works those seven years. He now has the two women as his wife. I love this, this quote even from Dr. Charlie Gates. He said that if the Bible says you're fine, let's just say Jacob was working another seven years. And then in chapter 29 all the way through 31, you guys take some time to read this, but we see like family chaos after family chaos. The wives are feuding with each other over who can have more children. They start giving Jacob maidservants and then claiming those kids as their own. Jacob lies and steals livestock from Laban, and we just see this cycle over and over and over again of Jacob doing things on his own and causing headaches and strife and struggle. A lifetime, generation, or or, excuse me, decades and decades of a man who has said, God, if you do this for me, then I'll do things for you. And in his own strength, he causes dysfunction and chaos. But then we get to chapter 32. Chapter 32, please spend some time reading kind of 22 through 32. But in chapter 32, verse 24. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Then the man saw that he could not overpower him, so he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But the man replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. Jacob wrestles with a man. He is fleeing his uncle. He is heading back to the land of his father. He is about to face Esau, who last he knew wanted to kill him. And in his own strength, one night a man comes and wrestles with Jacob. We'll later read and find out and see that this was God in human flesh. This was the Christ that came and wrestled Jacob. Charles Spurgeon says that it does not say that Jacob wrestled with the man, but rather there wrestled a man with Jacob. We call him wrestling Jacob, and so he was, but we must not forget the wrestling man or Rather, the wrestling Christ, the wrestling angel of the covenant who had come to wrestle out of Jacob much of his own strength and wisdom. and This is a major turning point now in the life of Jacob. In his ignorance, throughout the night, Jacob grapples and wrestles with this man. Right? In his ignorance, he thinks that he can contend with God until God ultimately, at the end of the night, proves his strength to him by throwing out his hip. And we see that it says like this man wrestled with Jacob. It wasn't all of a sudden Jacob began to fight with this man, but this man came and began to wrestle and work out the ignorance, the false sense of strength that Jacob had in himself. And it says that God continued and and allowed this wrestling to continue all night until by daybreak Jacob is exhausted, he is tired, he has nothing left and even in the book of Hosea, it will say that, that he, all he had left in him was to hold on and to grasp onto God and begins to weep, begging God to be blessed and for favor. This is a vitally important part in the life of Jacob, that it took him being conquered in flesh before he really surrendered and would submit to God. And it's the first time, too, if you remember, Isaac asked, what is your name? And he lies to his dad and says, my name is Esau, to steal something that wasn't his. In wrestling and being brought down in humility by God himself, God says, what is your name? And he says, Jacob. I'm one who's lied. I'm one who's deceived. I'm one who has tried to do things on my own strength and by my way in front of you. And he says, my name is Jacob. For one of the first times in his life, he's honest about who he is because God has wrestled out of him his own strength. David Guzik says that this is an invaluable place for everyone to come to where God conquers us. There's something to be said for every man doing his wrestling with God and then acknowledging God's greatness after having been defeated. We must know we serve a God who is greater than us. And we cannot conquer much of anything until he conquers us. For the first time in Jacob's life, he recognizes who he is in light of who his God actually is. His faith at this point, or from this point, had been passed down from his grandfather Abraham to his father Isaac. And he's bargained with God, making deals with God. And this is the first place his faith becomes his own. I had a chance this past week to travel with uh, a dear friend of mine, Noah, as he was preaching at uh, a, a church called City Hope in Mobile, Alabama, and during, uh, during one of the days I had a chance of sitting down with a, a guy named Hunter Wise, who's one of the uh, uh, college students and resident type things there at the church, and one of the things we talked about while we were sitting there was um, recognizing the, the, the time in our life where our faith became ours. Right for, for years, sometimes, our faith can be a byproduct of the teachings of our parents, or our faith may be a byproduct of our ministry or of the people that we hang out around, or our faith might even seem like the byproduct, um, byproduct of growing up in the South and we just come to church as this thing we do. And talking about how vitally important it is for us to get to a place in our life to where our faith becomes about who we are, recognizing how insignificant we really are in light of how mighty our God and creator really is. Like Jacob had to get to a place that each of us has to get to, and that is recognizing that I cannot control my life on my own. Like I have tried. I have tried to take the reins. I have tried to be the decision maker. I have tried to do things on my own, and there's issues and there's chaos and there's dysfunction and there's strife and there's pain, but we all have to get to a place in our lives where our faith becomes about recognizing who God is and in humility, all we have the strength to do is to cling to God and say, God, I have nothing left. I have no strength left to be God on my own, but in humility, God, will you bless me? Will you give me favor with you? And we see that Jacob wrestles and in his arrogance he thinks I can contend with God until God says no, 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 no. I have the power to throw out your, I have the power in an instant to let you know how weak you are in light of how powerful I am. And it is vitally important that in our wrestling, in our journey with Jesus that we get to a place of saying God, I can't do this on my own anymore. And our faith has to become ours, and then because of our faith, the byproduct is then our ministry. The byproduct is then the generations of legacy we leave for our children. But our faith is found ultimately in the humility of recognizing who God is. This is where we see Jacob's faith perspective really change. And thinking through, like, what happens when we wrestle with God? In our, in our lives and in your stories and in your testimony, like what happens when we wrestle with God? I think so often we go into it, believing that, that we have a little bit of the say. Right? Like in our ignorance at times, we feel like we might even be able to overpower God and, and in God's grace, he might even let that carry on a little while and he might let us feel like we're winning for a while until at some point in our lives, he will reveal to us how powerful he is and we can choose either to wrestle God with ignorance of who we think we can tell God that he is and who we are or we can wrestle with God immediately in humility already knowing that we can't contend with him and as i was reading through and just studying through Jacob i was i went for a walk and i was sitting on my porch and i was like god what was, uh, what was it about this guy that you chose to use cuz like he was a mess Like, reading through, you're you're like, God, please don't use him. Like, there is no way this is going to be the guy that you use to eventually rename as your children, as your country, as your people. That through the line of Jacob turned Israel will become David, and through David will become our Savior Christ. Like, what was it it about this guy? And, and, And being reminded that as we learned weeks ago that, God made a covenant with Abraham, and he walked through both sides, and he said, Abraham, if you abandon me, if Isaac goes against me, if Jacob goes against me, if generations go against me, and and even though you guys are going to break this covenant, God walked through both sides saying, I am still faithful, and I will still honor you. And we get to the third generation of that covenant, and we see a man who is a mess, but because of the promises of Abraham and the covenant, God is patient with Jacob. Jacob steals the right to be Israel. He is deceptive, he is a deceiver, but God's promises stayed true and stayed faithful even in Jacob's dysfunction. And thinking through, like, well, so what does that mean for us? Well, God has been so good to us when we don't deserve it, no thinking through, what's our covenant? Do we have a covenant promise that that we're shown uh, God's faithfulness through, like even when we mess it up? And we do, and it came through the line of Jacob. Through Jacob was David, and through David was Jesus, and through Jesus our Savior hung on a cross and his blood shed. God said, I'm going to walk through this covenant so that if anybody breaks it, even if you break it, I'll bleed and pay for it. And through the line of the dysfunction, through the line of the mess, we get to our Savior, Jesus, who says, I am bleeding because you have walked away. You have wrestled with me on your strength. You have tried to be God. You have tried to control. And now I am paying the price for that. And because of Jesus, we have this new covenant. And in that covenant, it gives us the hope of eternity that we get to spend one day in heaven worshiping our God forever. And so we ask the question, God, why did you use this man like he was a wreck, but you were patient with him because of your covenant? God, why do you choose to use me like I have been a wreck? God I am am dysfunctional. I can be deceiving at times. I have the ability to step into lies. I have the ability to do things on my own. I have the uh, ability and the tendency to think that I have control over my life. Why do you choose to use me? Because there is a covenant I have made with you. I have promised you hope and forgiveness if you will walk with me. And God has been so good to us in our dysfunction. There's promises tied to the covenant of Jesus, and we read and we think, God, don't use Jacob. But yet, if somebody could read the narrative of our lives, they might think, oh, God, please don't use Benji. Please don't use Randy. Please don't use him. And what they don't see is the grace and the love that Jesus has continued to pour out over us, even in our dysfunction. If you're saved, does that mean you stop doing dumb things? Like when we said yes to Jesus, when we began to live into Jesus' covenant, was that the last time we did something stupid? I promise you it's a no. But yet we see Jesus' faithfulness every day. Like Jacob, we mess stuff up all the time. We can be selfish, but Jesus. But the covenant of Jesus, but his patience for us, but his love for us, but the way that He lets us wrestle with him at times and in his grace, he continues to lead us. God used the disciples. They were the overlooked. They weren't the smartest. They weren't the wealthiest. They were the religious leaders, uh, second, third, fourth picks, but they were God's first picks we read in the scripture, we see these disciples that argued, they, they fought for position, they, they, didn't, they, they did not have it figured out by any means, and Jesus said, yeah, but that's the guys I want to use. God steps into the dysfunction, he steps into the chaos, and he said, if you will trust me in your humility, if you will have faith in me, I can use you, and God can use you. Our faith in him is tied to a promise, and Yahweh makes good on his promises. I have the privilege of studying with my granddad's Bible. My granddad passed away July 4th of this year, and uh, as we had the funeral and uh, we walked up into this church where he grew up, there was uh, Bibles and commentaries and things scattered uh, on the stage. And my grandmother, she let me take a couple of those home that, that now I have the privilege to study out of. And my granddad was the first cash in generations uh, that really surrendered his heart to Jesus. He comes from a family of drug addicts, alcoholics, porn addicts, poverty, comes from a life of nothing. And yet my granddad, decades and decades ago, made a decision to say yes to Jesus. And and at that funeral, my my dad tells a story about him and his brother would be in bed at night. And nights my granddad couldn't leave, he would walk up and down the hallways of their small house just praying and begging God for his family and for his boys to get it. He had been transformed, he had wrestled with God, and he had come to this place of humility of saying, Jesus, I'm going to still get it wrong, but you've made a promise to me, and I want to honor you. And he would pray over that house for his sons. And a couple years later, my dad would say yes to Jesus, and he would walk away from alcoholism and walk away from sex and walk away from this chaos and life away from Jesus and said, I want my life to be different now. And my granddad, through studying his scripture and through wrestling with God, it changed the temperature in that house a little bit. And then my dad said yes to Jesus, and it changed the temperature a little bit of the house that I got to grow up in. And because of God wrestling my strength out of me and bringing me to a place of surrender, it's changed the temperature of the house my boys get to grow up in. And four generations down the line, we have kids and Cedar an arrow that have a different life to live into because of the wrestling that my granddad did. And that's one of the things that I see in this story is like, God, why did you use Jacob? And it's like, I used him and I was patient with him because of what I did in his granddad. And it changed his dad and it gave him a little bit different perspective to walk with me. And then I humbled him and then generations down was David and I humbled him. And generations down came Jesus and through Jesus a new covenant was born and we now walk in this new covenant of knowing that I'm gonna mess it up I'm gonna screw it up but there's grace and forgiveness and our humility to Jesus and so I think the call in the story of Jacob is one recognizing the power and the words that we have to speak blessing over people so much so Jacob would go great lengths to steal those blessings God speaks blessing over Jacob, and Jacob receives it kind of half-heartedly, but we see the power of encouragement and blessing. Don't rob people from that. Don't rob people from what God may want to speak through you into the life of somebody else. And then we see a man wrestle with God, and we realize that in our humility and surrender, there's a new covenant that offers us eternal life. And the last thing being what is the legacy that we're handing down to our children and grandchildren? What is God doing in us that he wants to hand down to your kids and to your grandkids? What are the decisions that we can make today that change the temperature a little bit for our kids? And what are we doing day in and day out to live in the humility of Jesus that they're going to see that it's going to change the temperature for their kids? Scripture says that for a thousand generations, God blesses those who are righteous in him, that the things that we do in our life, the legacy that we set for our children can change thousands of generations to come, and it starts with us. In humility, we step into the covenant of Jesus, and so it's our turn with the ability to speak blessing surrender to God and the hope in the covenant of Jesus we leave a legacy and pave a path for kingdom warriors to come we're going to move into a a time of of prayer now, communion is open the altar is open And and as we come and we bow and as we spend time in prayer realizing God what are the things you're trying to wrestle out of me What are the things that I've been trying to control? What are the things that in my ignorance I'm trying to take take control over? That God's saying, I want to wrestle that out of you. Who are the people and the places that we can speak into, speak blessings over? And allow him to reshape us in this time. So, Father, I pray that you will move in our hearts during this time of worship. God, I thank you that this is your house and that as we step into this place, God, we are stepping into intimacy with you, that your presence isn't uh, isn't far off, that we don't have to climb a mountain, that we can't, uh, that we don't have to wait for once a year to walk into your presence, but because of Jesus, we can sit with you every day. So Holy Spirit, will you speak into our hearts now? Will you reveal things to us that we need to know? draw us deeper into a place of worship and surrender to you, Jesus.